Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the ILR podcast series. This is Harold Kim, president of the U.S. Chambers Institute for Legal Reform. And I've got to say, it is great to be back behind the mic. Really is hard to believe that it's been seven months since our last podcast. But who would have imagined a global pandemic to basically turn the world upside down? Now, this isn't to say that we've been sitting on our hands over at the Institute. I'll tell you that we've been laser focused on getting COVID-19 related liability protections in Congress and throughout the states. We're working with agencies at the state and at the federal level to curtail the problem of over-enforcement and regulatory overreach. And we're moving bread and butter legal reforms in states across the country. So if you wanna learn more about what we're doing, come check out our brand spanking new website that we recently launched at instituteforlegalreform.com. Again, it's instituteforlegalreform.com. So enough with the promo, let's get right to the podcast. Cause for Action is brought to you by the U.S. Chamber Institute for Legal Reform, the leading legal reform advocate in the U.S. and around the globe. Learn more at instituteforlegalreform.com. we're going to talk about today is the alarming rise of nuclear verdicts. Yes, nuclear verdicts. It sounds ominous, perhaps even apocalyptic, but it's a huge problem that we're seeing across this country. And when we talk about nuclear verdicts, we're talking about jury verdicts that generally exceed $10 million. This certainly describes some of the eye-popping verdicts we've seen in headlines and newspapers reaching into the billions of dollars. And in almost every case, the amounts being awarded are punitive or they're non-economic in nature. Uh, If you're not a lawyer, don't worry about it. We'll try and break this down and explain it to you uh, as easily as possible. And to really help us understand what's going on here, I'm really, really excited to have with us Bob Tyson. Bob is the founding and strategic managing partner of Tyson Mendez, based in beautiful San Diego. And Bob, I've got to say, San Diego is probably one of my favorite cities in the country. The weather is always nice. The beaches are beautiful. And I hear the lawyers there aren't too shabby as well. So welcome, uh, and, and thanks for joining us. What do you think about that? <laughs> I, I like it. I like it. You know, um, I won't turn my computer around and show you what I'm looking at right now, because I can see the beach and the bay. And this is a San Diego day today, sunny and gorgeous. Excellent. Well, the interesting thing about Bob, in addition to be, being an incredibly skilled and adept trial lawyer, um, doing a lot of defense work spanning decades, he's recently written a book titled Nuclear Verdicts, Defending Justice for All. And I think that this is the first ever book written for defense counsel on how to avoid these massive nuclear verdicts. And we are very interested and lucky to have Bob talk to us about this. So why don't we dive right into this, Bob? Um, tell me, am I right in characterizing nuclear verdicts? I mean, what are they? What's going on? And what's causing them? Yeah, no, thank you, Harold. Great to be on this. Um, thank you for all the work you and the Institute are doing as well. It is a, it's a, it's a battle out there. You know, I, I, I kid folks sometimes saying like, you know, wouldn't it be nice if you just showed up at court and you could kind of watch justice happen? Like, I'm going to go to court. Like, that's where justice happens. No, it, it, it's a fight for justice. And, and you guys are certainly on the right side of this. And I hope your constituents uh, appreciate all the hard work you're doing. But with respect to nuclear verdicts, your your definition is the traditional definition. I think, you know, when you're trying to see trends, you have to kind of look at numbers and look at data. And a lot of people do look to $10 million as the number. But another way to look at it, one way I used to look at it is, 
you know, verdicts that shock the conscience, but they happen all the time now. You know, we're all numb to nuclear verdicts. Right? Right. I mean, who's shocked by a $10 million verdict, a $100 million verdict even? You know, just a couple of years ago, we had our first ever single plaintiff uh, billion dollar case, right? Single single plaintiff billion dollar case out of Georgia. Um, so the way I look at it though is you were talking about it a little bit and maybe it's maybe it's a little bit, I don't know if I'll be able to understand it or explain it that well to your folks, but um, you have economic damages and you have non-economic damages and you have punitive damages. And the economic damages are, are just what they sound like. It's medical expenses, it's um, uh, lost wages, you know, if you lose your job and, and you file an employment claim um, or, or, or property loss. But um, then the non-economic, that, that's what we traditionally call pain and suffering. And, but there's pain and suffering in all kinds of cases, employment cases, uh, mass torts, environmental cases. So that's a big part of it. Then you have punitive damages where you're punishing the defendant for their actions. Right. What I believe a nuclear verdict is when the non-economic damages are, are so disproportionate from the economic damages. So um, someone loses their job and, and files a lawsuit uh, for wrongful termination and they, they get a new job. So their, their loss, their economic loss o- over the remaining you know, 15 years of their career, maybe $100,000 but the jury awards, say, $5 million, not 10, but $5 million. Well, I would call that a nuclear verdict, right? There, there was a $100,000 economic loss, but $5 million in non-economic because you know, they, they lost their passion. Their job was the essence of who they were. So it's, it's the non-economic portions of jury verdicts that have truly, truly skyrocketed. So, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's funny, you know, we look at like NFL contracts, right? And back in the day, a $10 million contract for five years was considered huge. And now they're in the hundreds of millions of dollars, but that's really developed over a period of time. It seems as though we're seeing these nuclear verdicts just explode on the scene. I think I I read somewhere like in the past five years, nuclear verdicts have almost doubled in comparison to the previous five years. So, you know, is this, is this something that's happening um, with demographics and jurors or, you know, if you were to pinpoint what's happening here, you know, what are some of the root causes? Yeah. So I, I, I know um, your organization addresses a lot of the causes, causes of social inflation, a lot of the, the big issues that are, that are, are impacting all of this, but I have a more finite look at this. I am at some level, just a simple trial lawyer, just trying to survive here. And I can look at jury verdicts from, from my glasses, from my purview here. And the way plaintiff's lawyers have tried cases has completely changed 180 degrees in the last 10, 15 years. So they so you can talk about social inflation and the impact that nuclear verdicts are having and, and what's the impact of society or different venues or different types of cases. But the reality is that the number one cause of nuclear verdicts is plaintiff lawyers. Well, so let's talk about that a little bit. You know, I've heard quite a bit about the so-called reptile theory that the plaintiff lawyers have been putting out there. And there was a book that was written about 10 years ago that really is a playbook, if you will, in terms of how to try these cases. 
and to get the types of verdicts in these, um, you know, tort litigation, personal injury, product liability. So can you tell us a little bit about the reptile theory? What is it? And it, it sounds like it's been pretty effective. Yes, it's been very effective. In fact, um, they claim on their website that since they the book came out in like 2009, um, they have achieved $8 billion worth of settlements and jury verdicts by attorneys who have used the reptile theory. And there's a lot out there about the reptile theory, and it has changed the way that plaintiffs try cases. But I think it's it's one component of it. And what it is, is it's plaintiff lawyers are trying, you know, it's very simple. If you think about it, a juror shows up for jury duty. And when they walk in that courtroom, they really could care less about the plaintiff or the defendant. I mean, they really can't. They can, you know, like they want to know what times it's going to be over. Do I have to even go to jury duty? Right. So they don't really care. You know, we're, we're living our case. We're loving our case. And, oh, I can't wait to tell them this and tell them that. And they're just like, mm, what time is it? Um, okay. Do we get a break? Do they pay for lunch? They don't pay for lunch. Right. Um, that, they put enough money in that bar- parking meeting. So the plaintiff's lawyers have come up with this way to get juries to care about their case. And the way they do that is they call it the reptilian part of the brain, which by the way, I took biology was a long time ago and I, I don't remember the reptilian part of the brain, but supposedly that is the part where um, it's your instinct to survive. And so what they try, plaintiffs try to do is get jurors to be in the same shoes as the plaintiff, as the injured plaintiff or the wrongfully terminated or who's ever been harmed um, and, and have them feeling the same thing that they felt. And if you get them, if, if you can't say it, say it's a small child, but you're an adult juror. Well, then they try to get you to feel like it's your child who was injured or whatever it might be. And then lastly, if you don't have any kids, they get you to care about the community. They want you to be the voice of the community. The number one thing that the rep, the reptile theory is trying to do, which has completely changed the way plaintiff's lawyers try cases the last 10, 15 years, is to get a jury angry. Anger is the key. Um, It's the key motivator behind almost every single nuclear verdict that you'll research. That jury, very few juries give 20 million, 50 million, 100 million dollars unless they're angry. Sympathy used to be the way they did it, but they've changed all that now. Plaintiff's lawyers are going for anger, and reptile theory is one way to get them angry. Well, you know, I, I remember back in my early legal career, I did try some cases, and I thought it was a big no-no for lawyers to tell jurors to put themselves in the shoes of a plaintiff or to put them, you know, in a place where they're not going to be as objective. I, I, I recall the golden rule as one of the significant um, trial rules that were out there, and I guess my question is, you know, have has defense counsel caught up to this and what are they doing in response to these tactics, which again have been around for a decade now? So uh, that, that's a great point. Um, So yes, the golden rule argument, you're not allowed to ask the jury to consider what they would want for losing their own arm or for uh, losing their own job, right? You can't ask them to be in the shoes of the plaintiff. And um, David Ball, who is the gentleman who wrote uh, uh, the Bible for plaintiff's lawyers, Ball on Damages, 
um, wrote the reptile theory. And um, he, he doesn't like my book. He doesn't like at all. He slammed it on Amazon. I thought it was a joke. I thought it was one of my friends pranking me. He slammed it on Amazon. But now, since then, he's given at least three seminars against my book. So they're a little bit worried about it. They're a little bit worried about it. Thus thou protest too much. But what he said on Amazon was, he called my book wholly unoriginal. And Harold, as you pointed out, it's the first book ever written for the defense. So like, it's pretty original may, to me. <laughs> yeah, the book may stink, but it's at least original, you know? <laughs> and then he said like a complete unawareness of the law or something. And that was telling because David Ball knows that the reptile theory, as you just alluded to, Harold, is illegal. Because if you've got the reptile theory, they have, a, they have a whole section, a whole compendium of law devoted to how to get around the laws in each of the 50 states to be able to use the reptile theory because it's illegal. So, yes, Harold, in every single jury trial that we have, we bring a motion based upon the golden rule argument and specifically addressing the reptile theory to say, Your Honor, this is what they do. They can't do it. And we win that motion every single time, Harold. We win it every single time. Almost every single time, the plaintiff lawyer will say, I don't know what the reptile theory is, just before <laughs> he launches into doing the reptile theory. Not that plaintiff lawyers are, aren't trustworthy or anything, but so we do it, the motion's granted, and then it still comes in. I've had a judge in closing argument, I object, uh, motion eliminate, you granted a month ago, this is in LA. Um, the reptile theory uh, overruled uh, for whatever reason during closing argument. I forget why we we got a break or he called a sidebar and he goes, Ron, this is motion eliminate something. No reptile theory. And he goes, and you ruled on it. You granted it. No reptile theory can't come in. Golden rule argument can't come in. And and he says, um, well, if what he's doing is the reptile theory, then I change my ruling. Well, <laughs> thanks, Ron. I'm, I'm glad we don't rely upon judges for rulings or anything. So thank you for that one. Um, but yeah, so we bring it, Harold, but it yeah. just doesn't matter. Well, let's talk about your book a little bit. Um, I, I read it over the summer. I will say to our listeners that it is a quick read. It is very, very easy to understand. You don't have to have a law degree. You don't need to be a trial lawyer to, to get to kind of the, the meat and potatoes of what you're recommending. Um, we could probably spend three hours talking about, you know, the various sections of your book. So maybe, maybe I'll just throw out a broad-based question. How do you slay the reptile? What are the best ways if you were to, you know, say it in a few minutes? Yeah. Um, so, look, I, I'll tell you what we do when we, we get brought into a case. And we get parachuted, parachuted in a lot. In other words, we get brought in. We weren't handling the case for a couple of years or a year. We get brought in a couple of months or a couple of weeks before a trial. And, and this goes for the reptile theory. What you have to do is figure out what's going to get a jury angry. What's going to get a jury angry about the case? And sometimes it's not about the particular incident. It's not about the particular environmental loss. It's, it's what you did. Sometimes it can be what you did afterwards. It, it could be in a, in a wrongful termination. It could be how you fired the person, you know, or, or when you did it. Like, yeah, she deserved to be fired, but uh, not on her birthday or something. You know what I mean? Like, so, so what's going to get a jury angry? You need to figure that out. And then really what the, the book is about and what this whole new strategy is about is how do you diffuse anger? How do you diffuse anger? And, and it's, it's a human emotion. It's a human emotion, right? Anger is a human emotion. So you don't need all this legalese to do it. 
the defense lawyers need to be human beings. We need to be human beings and acknowledge, acknowledge they're angry, acknowledge a jury may get angry um, and then diffuse it. And, and that's what the book talks about is how to diffuse anger. Well, one of the things that uh, I found interesting in terms of your recommendations was for defense counsel to seriously consider accepting responsibility as a means of diffusing this anger. But, you know, maybe in a case where there is clear liability, that's easier to do. But, you know, I think normally defense counsel are trained to fight the issue of liability and they're, they're kind of just wired that way. And so I guess my question is in practice, well, how practical is that? Is it something that cuts across the board? And I'd be interested to hear what feedback you've gotten from the defense community uh, specifically on that particular tactic. Yes, um, we, we as defense lawyers struggle with that because um, we feel like if we're accepting responsibility, we're getting closer to causation and we're getting closer to damages, which means we lose. But what I tell people is, could you please, I know you're a lawyer, but could you be a human being first, okay? I mean, I, what I try to say to these lawyers when we get brought in is like, how did you feel when you first got this case? I know you've got defenses. You've got these experts who say you did nothing wrong. I get it. And you can explain that to me because, you know, a lot of in, in the personal injury or, or the products liability arena or the mass tort arena, you know, all these lawyers are kind of frustrated doctors, you know, defense lawyers. I'm not. I'm not a frustrated doctor. Never wanted to be a doctor. But there's comfort in that. There's comfort. Defense lawyers find comfort in the rules and the medicine and, 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 and how it all plays in together. The human being part, that's the most important part. These 12 people show up. They don't know anything about science, but they know about being human beings, okay? So what I'm saying is pause for a second. Think about what happened here. Think about how you felt when you first opened up that file and, and maybe saw these horrific photos. I mean, that happened to a human being. So acknowledge that. This is the first time the jury's seeing it too. You've had it for years, right? But stop, acknowledge it, acknowledge what's going on. We say all the time in our firm, embrace the awkward. It's awkward. It's awkward to talk about loss. It's awkward to talk about money. It's awkward to accept responsibility when you're trained to fight everything. But if you wanna win the war, you've got to, to accept losing some of these individual battles. And the, the one thing that, that proves that we're on to something here is plaintiff's lawyers do not want you to accept responsibility for anything, for anything. They, they're giving podcasts about it. I just listened to one by a very well-known plaintiff's lawyer in Los Angeles who said um, his worst case scenario would be, a, would be a defense lawyer who came in and truly accepted responsibility in the case. Um, it would just it would just take the air out of his balloon. And he said, fortunately for me, it's never happened. So, Harold, you're right. Defense lawyers don't accept responsibility. Well, I would encourage our listeners to check out your book. You could find it on Amazon and you can comment on Amazon, uh, especially now that you're getting comments from our friends in the plaintiff's bar. I think that that is very telling. It's a great book. And I think the more people ought to read it uh, to at least inform uh, strategies moving forward. Um, you know, since I have you, Bob, um, I was wondering if I could talk to you a little bit about the great state of California and the lawsuit climate there. Uh, it's, I think, considered by the business community as one of the more challenging jurisdictions. Uh, a lot of lawsuits from class actions to consumer litigation. And, you know, we, we do a, 
uh, a ranking of the states every two years, one to 50, who's got the best legal climates, the best laws on the books. Uh, and it's really a, a qualitative review from outside counsel, who we basically survey. And California has always been at the bottom of the barrel. I think they came in maybe at 49 or 48. Uh, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about, I mean, since you're a practitioner there, about how difficult of a jurisdiction it is generally when it comes to, you know, all types of uh, business-related litigation. And it, is, it, is, it, uh, is it concerning for you being a practitioner and a member of the bar there? So not so much as a practitioner, but one thing you got to remember, Harold, is I'm a small business owner here in California. I mean, I've got over 300 employees, but uh, most of them are, are based in California. And so the problems my clients are facing, I'm facing too. It, it's a nightmare to do business here. I mean, you, you can't believe the discussions I have with my employment lawyers and my HR team. It's, it's insane. So now, the, on the flip side, when I go to court, in fairness, is I'm from New York. I'm from Staten Island, New York, but I've lived out here since law school, so over 30 years. This is all I know. And if you look at California from a, from a trial level, hey, for the defense, downtown LA is the toughest venue. It's the toughest venue. Yeah. And then after that, you, know, you go to uh, San Francisco, really the whole Bay Area. It is tough. Uh, San Diego is, is in Orange County are, are, are pretty good for the defense, but um, it, it's tough out there. You know, the other thing you have to realize is that we've got the most creative plaintiff lawyers in America here in California. So once you do get sued and, and they talk, these plaintiff lawyers, they share everything. I, they know more about me than my firm knows about me. I've, I've been in trial before. I've been with my kids in a, in a shopping uh, in a shopping mall, and I've had a plaintiff's lawyer come up to me and say, oh, I hear you're starting trial on Monday. Like, How do you know that? I mean, people in my firm don't even know I've got trial on Monday, but the whole plaintiff bar knows. So very organized, aggressive, intelligent, creative plaintiff's lawyers out here that start these trends that then go across the country. Yeah, it really, it does seem like a, a very challenging environment for defendants specifically, uh, whether you're at the federal or even at the state court level. I mean, you've got things like Prop 65 and, you know, the CLRA, the Consumer Legal Remedies Act, and now you've got this data privacy law uh, that has private rights of action for data breaches. So, you know, there seems to be a, an arsenal of tools that the plaintiff lawyers can avail themselves to in terms of pursuing all lines of litigation. And I don't think you've seen nothing yet. Get ready, Harold. I mean, there's going to be, once we start talking about vaccines, no vaccines, can I mandate that employees be vaccinated or even ask them if they've been vaccinated before I let them back in my office? I mean, just wait for the laws that are going to be coming out of California in the next 12 months. Well, you know, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because early on, you know, we are very focused on uh, extending liability protections emerging out of this coronavirus because there's a significant amount of concern from exposure claims to labor-related claims or employment claims. And, you know, we're, we're certainly focused on getting a national law enacted before Congress, but the states have acted. There are 30-plus states, but I don't see California on that list, unfortunately. <laughs> It is amazing just the viewpoints of Californians, man. It's like, talk about nuclear verdicts to them, you know, like talk to them about just at a cocktail party about my book. Like 
and, and you say, like, it's crazy. Like, look at this verdict. Can you explain, you know, a hundred million dollar verdict? And they'll say that's crazy. And, but you try to limit that. You try to limit their day in court, their, their right to a occasional, what I believe is a jackpot. These same people that think it's outrageous, they don't want to give up that right to sue. Um, the right to sue is an inalienable right in California. Yeah. Well, Bob, thank you for your time on this podcast. Uh, terrific book. Again, I would urge my listeners to, to check it out. It's on Amazon. It is titled Nuclear Verdicts, Defending Justice for All. Uh, we're, we're happy that you are on the front lines uh, trying to get justice for all because it extends to plaintiffs as well as defendants. And we hope Absolutely. that the, the listeners here can spread the word and to get some, some more balance when it comes to litigation. So with that, I want to thank you, Bob, for joining us. Enjoy it out there in California and be safe, be well. Thank you. You too, Harold. Appreciate it.